And here we go with another broad term, uh, performativity, that we're going to do our best to define and apply. Uh, you're going to see how well it applies to actually one of the viewing assignments you're going to be doing for this week's module. Um, and when we're talking about performativity, we're obviously it's in close relation to how we've defined performance, but a lot of it has more to do with how we enact performance in our everyday life uh, and also what are the effects of that performance in everyday life. So we're gonna be breaking down a lot of terms uh, that you might have heard before, but in context of performance and performativity. We're gonna be talking about postmodernism and post-structuralism, and we're gonna do our best to give those terms definitions and see how they sit with performativity. I know it's a common theme in a lot of these chapters, but we have another term that's kind of hard to pin down. The words performity and performative have acquired some uh, so a wide range of meanings. Both are often used loosely to indicate, indicate that something is like a performance without actually being a performance in the orthodox or formal sense, meaning not necessarily like theater-based or even play. Uh, performative is both noun and an adjective. As a noun, performative indicates a word or sentence that does something, like a performative is a label that I can put on a certain act that I engage in, right? Like um, uh, even something as simple as rolling my eyes, like that in and of itself, like is a performative. But as an adjective, performative inflects what it modifies with performance-like qualities, like performative writing. Um, and we'll talk, we'll do our best to kind of talk about this difference a little bit with examples moving forward. Performativity is similar to as performance. We talked about of performance and as performance before. And performativity re refers to the construction of social reality, including gender and race, two things we're going to be talking about a bunch in this chapter. Uh, the restored behavior or the restored behavior quality of performances and the complex relationship of performance practice to performance theory. What we're going to do coming up is we're going to take this term performativity in all of these different categories and then try to show how it applies. I think the ones that are most important to us is both gender and race and restored behavior because that's where sport comes in. Uh, the performance of the performance of gender and race in terms of the athlete within the context of play and how restored behavior quality exists in play also. These are some of the key terms relating to performativity and performative, and you'll see that what we're going to do is try to apply some prior authors uh, who have used the term either performativity or performative. So we're going to talk about Austin's performative and his definition, Searle's speech acts, how that fits in with performative. We'll talk about reality television and how that might fit in with the concept of performativity to maybe give you a touchstone uh, of how to understand it. We'll talk about postmodernism, simulation, poststructuralism, and deconstruction. And also, as I said before, two things that are going to be very important to our study, constructions of gender and constructions of race. J.L. Austin's perspective on performative comes from a very simple quote, to say something is to do something. So all act is performative. So Austin put uh, a bunch of things under this heading. So the idea of making a promise, making a bet, a curse, a contract, a judgment, they do not describe or represent actions. Those in themselves are actions. So we can look at all of the behavior that's embedded within something like a promise or a bet or a contract or a judgment, all of that, and say that all of those things are performative 
It's an it's a performative action that we're engaging in. The words usually need to be corroborated by some sort of nonverbal action, like when you go all in while you're betting, you have to push your chips to the center of the table. Uh, when you swear with your hand on a holy text like the Bible or the Quran, you don't just do one or the other. It's a performative collection of actions that all make up this swearing or uh, make up going all in. It's a combination of things, and that combination is the performative. Now, Austin had some different rules about how a performative can be carried out. Some performatives are unhappy or they're botched, like they don't go the way that they're supposed to. And the only way we know that it didn't go the way that they were supposed to is because we have kind of like a standard by which that performance should have been carried out. Austin particularly disliked performatives in theater uh, because he thought no matter what that they were too fake. They were too removed from the real. The performative of an act in theater was uh, was too detached from the performative of the act in real life. So there was this kind of like embedded suspension of disbelief that the audience would have to enter into theater with. Uh, you would have to look at an act that's occurring on the stage and say, oh, I know what that refers to, as opposed to that act actually being the thing that it's referring to. Uh, so there's this concept of the as if. Uh, theaters as if is a space where characters are real within their own domain and time, meaning that like audiences go in and they identify with characters just the way actor the same way actors identify with characters too. They might shed real tears over the fate of the characters. They might become deeply involved with the characters. Uh, the actors are insofar as the characters partake in their special reality. Their performative utterances are efficacious, meaning that they do the job, but we still know they're not real. We act as if in theater and we respond as if they're real, but we also understand that it's not. Austin didn't like that. Like he didn't, no matter how close you got to real performance, he didn't like the knowing that there was a difference between real performative and this, for lack of a better term, fake performative. Austin didn't understand or refused to appreciate the unique power of theater as imagination made flesh, as Schechner puts it. And I, particularly in this case, I disagree with Austin. Uh, I really enjoy the concept of live theater or the concept of reproduction of performative and feel like that's one of the ways that we judge theater acting actors, whether or not we connect with characters, whether or not we connect with their performance is how close it gets to what we consider to be a real performative. John Searle is another who was a little bit skeptical of theater yet still identified performative uh, as a collection of speech acts. Uh, John Searle asserted that the basic unit of communication was the speech act, and he located speech acts in the realm of behavior as doings on at least three different levels. Like, first of all, the uttering of sounds, and those sounds, as we collect them, they form into words and sentences, and then those words and sentences that refer to things and events, uh, or they try to predict behavior, so that collection of words and sentences to create ideas in other people, and then also words and sentences that state, question, command, and promise. So he's able to, Searle's able to here, take a performative act, like somebody acting in a particular way, and break down all their different speech acts. Uh, Searle wanted speech acts to be studied in context, as organized by systems, which is actually kind of where our study of intercultural communication comes from and where the study of synchronous communication comes from. We're not just looking at 
the message in terms of the sounds and words. We're also looking at where it takes place. We're looking at relationship between sender and receiver. We're looking at the culture and the setting in which it takes place. So Searle was, you know, a communication scholar. Searle argued that people construct their realities largely by means of speech acts, and they communicate these realities to each other by means of speech acts. So the way we understand the world around us and the way we communicate the world around us to other people is through speech acts or communication. That kind of makes sense, right? So the performative is the collection of all of these speech acts that represent our reality, and then we perform that to other people. But Searle also didn't include theater. He, just like Austin, discarded theater and said he didn't like it. Searle didn't include this, this kind of like meta communication, this reproduction of performative in theater. He didn't include that under the heading of one of the levels of speech acts. The reason why we're talking about reality TV here is because it's an interesting case study when we're talking about performativity. Uh, let's take the show Survivor. First aired in 2000, it's still a popular reality show, still on. Uh, its very premise is to erase the distinctions between the real and the stage. It's supposed to blur that line between, again, what did Austin and what did Searle kind of reject, right? They rejected this idea that there was a this performative, but it wasn't real life. Well, what about reality television? Like, is the performative that we're seeing, Is the are the performances that we're seeing while we're watching Survivor, what is that? Is it real life? But it's mediated, so it's not. It's edited, so it's not. What Survivor contestants are enacting is not improvised theater exactly, nor is it real life exactly. It's, it's real within this context of the show that we watch, but also in control of the editors and CBS. Um, there's also all these other factors that need to go into it, like there's money in play on television, and there's struggle among networks for viewers. Um, so it's not just... It's not news. We're not just representing these people's lives. They're being represented for the purposes of entertainment. Um, so the idea is that, okay, we're showing you reality. We're showing you real performances, but they're mediated for entertainment purposes. So where is, like, what are those performatives then? Uh, are they, uh, are they, uh, are they performances of people's individual personalities? Or are they almost kind of acting in a way is this is this another form of meta communication and believe me there's there's better scholars than me that study uh, reality television and this separation and the impact of reality television on viewers but when we're talking about performativity it's a good question to ask yourself when you're watching reality tv what do you think you're watching do you think you're watching performances of real selves or do you think you're watching reenacted performances do you think you're watching on some level actors who are playing a part. What about displays of performativity that are that that purport to be reality but they're not necessarily constrained by television networks? Well, think about the prevalence of mediums like Instagram Live, Periscope, Facebook Live, vlogging. Would all of those fall under the heading of reality television? Now maybe we can pull out reality television and just call it reality broadcast, but what what are we watching? Uh, what are we watching when we're watching YouTubers, when we're watching vloggers, when we're watching people go on Instagram Live? Like, is this mediated performativity? Are these people that are performing a certain version of self or they're performing a certain role? And in doing it, there are certain restrictions and there are certain kind of expectations that are embedded within that role. What else falls under this heading of mediated performativity? That's a good question to ask because what about when we expand this out? And we say, like, well, what does it mean 
for someone to engage in performativity of athletics. Uh, or let's say somebody has the label of being an athlete. I, I'm thinking of an example of a, a football player, a wide receiver named Antonio Brown. At the time, he was playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it was immediately after a game, and he was in the locker room and decided to go on, at the time, I believe it was his, either his Instagram Live or it was his Periscope, while his coach was giving kind of like an impassioned post-game speech. And he was roundly criticized for that, uh, basically saying that, oh, well, you violated the sanctity of the locker room. And he said, no, this is just me engaging with my fans. Maybe as far as he was concerned, that was him like part of his performativity of his brand of Antonio Brown, like with his fans meant he'll go on Instagram live when he's in the locker room, but everybody else that was playing the role of football player, like in the locker room, if for that one instance, they might've looked at that as being inappropriate and wrong. Um, these kind of, these added mediated channels kind of complicate this question of what is performative, what's appropriate, what's expected, and what are some of the mediums that we can use to engage in this performativity. We take the concept of performativity uh, in performance studies as part of postmodernism. And what we have to do is we have to define postmodernism. Uh, one of the decisive qualities of postmodernism is the application of the performance principle to all aspects of social and artistic life. And again, what is that performance principle? Understanding that all aspects of social and artistic life are performance, therefore they can be studied. Uh, postmodernism has to be considered in context. It's it, it's used differently. Even the term by itself is used differently in art, architecture, philosophy, literature, etc. To understand postmodernism, I guess we need to know what modernism was. Well, modernism looked for new forms of expression that broke from norms and was considered cutting edge. So think about the popularization of art and theater. Okay, think about that when we were talking before about, you know, this idea when we were talking about play, when we we're talking about the popularization in the 16th century of um, of needing outlet for play, right? Even within the structure, you know, there's there's the everyday life, there's real life, but then we still need spaces that we're able to play. And then within those spaces that we were able to play, there were new forms of expression. There was new art. There was new types of theater, new types of music. And it broke from the normal standard structure, and it was really considered cutting edge. That was modernism. Well, postmodernism is, you know, after the development of kind of like these two separate, you know, okay, there's, there's serious on one side, and there's all these different kinds of art on the other side. Postmodernism goes in and disrupts that traditional difference and hierarchy of primary life and art being like an escape or something secondary. Postmodernism essentially says, nope, there shouldn't be a separation between those two. They have much more in common than they do difference, and we're going to drill down and try to explore it. So if we're drilling down and trying to explore it, one of the ways we can do it is by saying all life and all art are both performative. It's a very postmodern perspective, as opposed to a modernist perspective, which would think that those should be separate. Postmodernism in terms of art meant it demystified art, and by all implication of all cultural products, including the state and religion. Uh, that demystification was not a bad thing. It basically meant that art shouldn't be something that was only, um, it was only accessed by the elites. Art shouldn't be something that was only engaged by those with the, the, the luxury of leisure time. 
uh, art shouldn't be only held as separate and then uh, the only people that can attend theater or the only people that can attend art galleries, the only people that can engage in creating art were people with, you know, were, were the affluent uh, that had the time to be able to do that kind of thing. No, it should be something that's engaged in and consumed by the masses. Recognizing, analyzing, and theorizing the convergence and collapse of a clearly demarcated reality, hierarchy, and category is at the heart of postmodernism. Postmodernism does not like separates. Postmodernism does not like binaries. Postmodernism likes the idea that everything is connected. So when we say that everything is performative, that's a good way. I mean, those things are very connected, the concept of postmodernism and the introduction of performance studies. Now, the reason why that last little bullet point that I included says, think about Deadpool. Well, for those of you that haven't seen the movie Deadpool, first of all, you have to, both Deadpool and Deadpool 2. But what's different about Deadpool in films and also in comics is that he's very self-referential. Deadpool speaks directly to the audience, whether it be in the comics or in the film. He'll turn directly to the camera and talk to the people that are watching. Deadpool as a character acknowledges that he's in a movie. Deadpool will refer to other movies that exist outside of his own. Um, the other characters don't have to play. The other characters don't even have to realize that he's doing it. Deadpool breaks all conventions of film. In film, you're supposed to think, oh, I'm watching a performance of something that didn't necessarily happen. Well, Deadpool acknowledges, like, hey, this is a movie and this is happening. Might even refer to himself by the character's name, Ryan Reynolds, as opposed to by the character, or by the, uh, by the actor's name, Ryan Reynolds, as opposed to the character's name. It subverts all of these differences. It subverts the hierarchies involved in film. It subverts the realities that we expect to see in both film and comic books. Deadpool's a postmodern character. He breaks all of that stuff down. Now think about the performance of that character. Wow, that's deep. Like there's a lot we could look at in terms of the performativity of a character like Deadpool. Um, I could read interviews with Ryan Reynolds all day talking about his kind of hesitation in taking on that role. And part of the reason he hesitated in taking on the role of Deadpool, as much as he wanted to do it, he realized how hard it was going to be to be able to essentially play himself, Deadpool, and then the referential version of Deadpool all at the same time. Well, Deadpool's a very postmodernist character. Another term we have to define is simulation. And simulation can is another term that's used a lot in vernacular, so it could be kind of misunderstood in our applications of it here, but I'm going to do my best to explain it. A simulation is neither a pretense nor is it an imitation. It's a replication of itself as another. The idea is that simulations are perfect performatives. A simulation of something else is supposed to be the exact thing represented again. Um, one one of the best examples that both Schechner uses and I've heard used in the past is about uh, is using a digital version of a song that is duplicated and shared over the internet. Okay, now what is that? What would you call that? Would you call that a copy, or would you call that an original? Um, if any of you have ever done this, if you've ever had a file on your computer and then you go to right click and you say duplicate, well, after you click duplicate, it doesn't produce a file with the exact same name. Maybe it puts a number two after it. So you can make the argument that both of those files, while if you, let's say it's a song, you listen to them both, they sound exactly the same, right? But both of those files have different names. One of them has a two after it. 
One of them was created at a different time. So even though you could make the argument that they are copies of each other, you could also make the argument that both of them are originals. They have original names. They were created independently of each other, right? So, and is there a theoretically infinite series of copies or a theoretically infinite series of originals? Basically, th there's no difference between the copy and the original in some case, other than the differences that we point out. I realize this is starting to get a little bit confusing, but just think about what we're trying to do when we're doing a simulation. We're trying to create a representation of a thing as clearly as we possibly can. A convincing simulation is the presence of an appearance uh, or a replication that's so perfect that it's indistinguishable from an original. So uh, the here the text gives you a couple examples like elaborate examples of simulation include uh, Disney World, Colonial Williamsburg, and Plymouth Plantation. Now are those things the originals or are they replications that are done meant to represent like some other reference like an original? Even if somebody's doing an impression of somebody else, right? What do we judge that on? We judge that on how closely it represents the original that they are doing their best to replicate, okay? So uh, an idea of a simulation is a recreation with some sort of original referent that it's based on. So how do we play simulations with performatives? I know this is a might be a terrible example, but I remember when I was a baseball player, my favorite baseball player at the time growing up was, and you can look him up, his name was Don Mattingly. He was a New York Yankee. And what I did was I mimicked a lot of Don Mattingly's style in the batter's box when I would go up to when I would go up to hit. All those things that I mentioned before in play that I used to do uh, before swinging the bat, all of those were things I copied from Don Mattingly. Was I doing a simulation? I wasn't representing him, but I was mimicking a lot of his own behavior. So we're going to talk more about mimicry. Uh, later on. We talked about it earlier as type of play, but what is it? it? It's replication of performative. And that replication of performative comes from this motivation to simulate, right? This motivation to replicate and create, hopefully, the closest version to the original that we possibly can. Remember before when we were talking about postmodernism? Well, let's bring it back because now we're going to talk about post-structuralism because the combination of those two things, the existence of postmodernism and then the creation of post-structuralism, those are the bases for the academic theories of performativity. Uh, postmodernism and post-structuralism can only be understood if they're examined in relation to each other. So just a refresher, postmodernism is a practice in the visual arts, architecture, performance art, basically the idea that uh, we're not, there's this subversion of not just, you know, the real life on one side and art on the other side, that they're kind of together. Well, post-structuralism, also called deconstruction, is an academic response to postmodernism. Basically, there, when we're looking at like where performativity came from, we had to come up with a lens to be able to examine behaviors that were existing within postmodernism. That lens is performativity, and applying that lens of performativity to postmodern behaviors, that's what post-structuralists do. Post-structuralists are opposed to all notions of universals, originals, or firsts. To post-structuralists, every act, every utterance, every idea is performative because they're looking at the world through a performative lens. So everything is performative, 
everything can be studied. And what are we studying? We're studying the actions in a postmodern world. So what are post or what is post-structuralism? Taking a performative lens and looking at postmodern acts. Post-structuralism began in France in the 1960s both as a revolt against structuralism and in sympathy with the radical student movement that culminated in strikes and insurrections of 1968. The idea that uh, if we're looking at everything through that lens of performativity, one of the things we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at the structures that exist around us. And if we're looking at the structures that exist around us, we're going to ask where the hell did these come from? like how each word that we're using is performative in and of itself. Structuralism took its main program of discovery of universal unconscious structures of language, mind, and culture. So basically, structuralism created a lot of the categories that we, not unconsciously, but we were kind of forced to live our lives by. Uh, a favorite device of structuralism was creating kind of two categories, binary opposition, and then playing them against each other. The idea that uh, we'll create a concept of man and woman, we'll create a concept of white and black, we'll create a concept of developed versus undeveloped, think about countries, uh, we'll develop a concept of illegal uh, or legal versus illegal. So within structuralism, it becomes very easy to place behaviors. Uh, you know whether or not those behaviors assign to your gender identity, whether that be man or woman, uh, a racial identity of either white or black, uh, whether those behaviors fit in what we would in what we would call a developed uh, culture, developed society, or undeveloped, and whether or not those behaviors are legal or illegal. Post-structuralists like Foucault and Derrida opposed all notions of universals, originals, firsts, and binaries. To post-structuralists, every art every act, excuse me, every act, every utterance, every idea is a performative. So we can't take each one of those acts, utterances, and ideas and only break it down in binary opposition. What we had to do was we had to complicate them a little more. We had to figure out what were the motivations? Where are they coming from? Why are people engaging in these acts? And let's just not assign them to particularly... Uh, spurious categories that we created, especially ones that are only binary. We need categories that are much more complex than that. So post-structuralism, think about what it means, because we also call it deconstruction. It's trying to break down standards. It's trying to break down structures that had been built that we understand the world around. Well, we need to complicate those. We need, to, we need better ways to understand the world as opposed to just these binaries. Let's really drill down on what this means, the diffusion of post-structuralism. How does it then, like we talked about, like breaking down of these binaries or resistance to binaries, well, how does that manifest itself? Well, what unites this diverse and sometimes self-contradictory uh, collation uh, is both an identification with the subaltern. Now, the subaltern is very, uh, if you've taken intercultural communication with Tom Nakayama or you take gender and communication, you might hear that term. The subaltern is essentially the marginalized, the discriminated against, okay? So when we're breaking down um, structures that exist and we're saying, no, we're going to reject these binaries, what we're doing is we're going out of our way to say there are people that do not fit within your binary distinction and they are marginalized and discriminated against. That is the definition of the subaltern. So we identify, post-structuralists identify with the subaltern and they have this desire to sabotage, if not directly overthrow the existing order of things. 
Um, post-structuralists want to identify people that exist outside this binary identification and show you that your binary is problematic and that it needs to be modified. The core opposition of post-structuralism is decentering, uh, some sort of attack on hegemony, on authority, on any fixed system, whether it be philosophical, sexual, political, artistic, economic. Um, the idea, so I'm thinking of Michel Foucault and Michel Foucault, post-structuralist voice in one of the texts that he wrote was called The History of Sexuality, basically identifying where these, these two kind of normative binaries came from, you know, heterosexual, homosexual, and what about the existence of, sex, of sexual orientation outside of the binary? That challenged that kind of like sexual structuralism. Okay, so post-structuralism would be a decentering of simply that binary and saying, no, we need to complicate this a little bit more. And you'll see, we're going to talk about this in a second, you'll see how we do this with race, you'll see how we do this with gender. It's a very post-structuralist perspective. The post-structuralist challenge, not so-called facts, but how knowledge itself is manufactured, performed, and written. Uh, we want to know, okay, what do we know? And then were there structural, were there structural kind of um, laws that we obeyed when creating knowledge? So if we go back and we look at those structural laws that we obeyed when we were creating knowledge and we complicate those structural laws, do we really know anything? It's kind of like a, it's a very heady way to go through life. Uh, as a consequence, the term performative now includes everything from doable acts of the body to imaging of all kinds, like painting, photographic, digital imaging, and then also writing. All of those things are performative and they all exist outside of this general binary, right? Um, and when we can say all acts are performative, it means all acts can be studied. Uh, acts that are structuralist, acts that are post-structuralist, and we don't necessarily separate kind of rule-bound by not rule-bound anymore. Everything is performance. So we can look at everything by performance. It helps us uh, in performance studies. Post-structuralism is a big deal, but you can kind of see how when we're talking about the goal being attacks on all kinds of hegemony, authority, and fixed system, uh, why a lot of people push back against the concept of post-structuralism. One of the performative acts you see kind of not necessarily in debate, but being understood on a much grander scale now, one of the, one, one of the binaries that we're complicating is the construction of gender. Um, so Schechner writes, if history is an open project and social reality, the interplay of these conflicting performatives, how does this affect circumstances thought to be fixed biologically or by unshakable traditions like gender and race? Well, you know, we would, or not we would, but, you know, the thought was gender was tied to sex. Gender was tied to biology. And we know now that that's not necessarily the case. But it took this performative inquiry. It includes, but also seeks beyond changes wrought by social action. The performative inquiry asks, what constitutes individual identity and social reality? Are these constructed or given? And if they're constructed, out of what? Ask yourself, what does it mean? Like what these constructions of gender, is it, it's not male, female as related to sex. It's male, female as related to masculinity or femininity or performance of maleness or femaleness or complication of such any of the identities in between. 
Gender is not a binary. Judith Butler argues that gender is all performative. Um, and it, do yourself a favor and Google Judith Butler, gender is performative. I believe there's a five minute video explainer you can check out that gives her, her kind of perspective on how all gender identity is performed and we can't sum it up into a singular binary. So I think the constructions of gender as we see them now and as we see them being complicated and more so how they're being understood by others, that gender is not a binary is post-structuralism at work. It's breaking down that binary and then also infusion of performance studies, the acknowledgement that all gender is performative. And then we can say, well, wait a minute, what are those performances? What are those particular acts that people engage in that then display a certain gender? That's performance studies. Now let's do the same thing with race. We need to complicate that as well. The importance of race as a cultural category cannot be sustained by its often purported basis in nature. Race is not uh, race is not tied again to biology. It's not necessarily tied to nature. It doesn't exist at the level of DNA. It's only understood as a construction. It's a human-made set of characteristics based in a socio-political and cultural context. You have to ask yourself, like, what constitutes belonging to a certain race? Because it changes over time and place. An example I've used in many of my classes is if you were to fill out a job application 50 years ago and it would ask you your racial identity, there weren't a whole lot of boxes you can check. Maybe it was white, black, and other. Well, now you go fill out a uh, you go fill out a job application. You're gonna find if they ask you your racial identity at all, there's a hell of a lot more boxes than just white, black, and other. And by the way, they're not called white and black anymore. Like we have different we have different names for racial identities, and we're also complicating racial identity because we know a lot of us don't fit into just one of those boxes, like multiracial or necessarily even when we use some large label like Asian. Think about how many countries that identifies, right? If we ask somebody a racial identity and we paint them with Asian, we couldn't necessarily be saying, oh, there's half a world that you could be from and we'd still identify you that way. I guarantee in that part of the world, they're not self-identifying as Asian. Throughout much of U.S. history, people were placed in and placed themselves in very definite racial categories. But we're breaking out of that binary. We're breaking out of those racial categories or we're complicating them. We also know, and we're trying to break this down, but we know that stereotypes reinforce ideas about race, but sometimes stereotypes are taken up, exaggerated, and developed by those targeted by stereotypes. The idea of stereotype threat, um, and that's something we talk about a lot in Introduction to Communication Studies and also in Intercultural Communication. But just think about how uh, race is performative. Uh, racial identification, then imbued with a certain set of uh, maybe a certain set of presentations, whether that be through vocal presentation, whether that be through nonverbal presentation of dress, all of those things being performative and then judge whether or not you fit into particular racial identity or category. No, we're, we're, we're past that. I guess, I guess the woke approach would be one that suggests that these racial categories are very, very limiting and they don't define our behavior. It's more backwards. Like our behavior, you might want to assign to a particular racial category, but there's no guarantee that you're going to be right. Those behaviors though, they can be studied because those behaviors, they're performative. As we come to the end of chapter five, let's end with some conclusions about performativity. Uh, most theorists of performativity argue that all social realities are constructed. So the construction of gender, race, identity, those are three key examples. The 
question then is, all right, well, the construction, the construction of gender, race, and identity are examples of performativity. So how do we study it? Well, we study those performative acts, right? That's what performance theory is supposed to do. We look at performative acts and we try to figure out what they do. Performatives come in two types, the clearly marked and the more diffuse. We can look at stuff like specific speech acts, like a promise, a bet, or a contract. Those things are very clearly marked. But instead, there's also the more diffuse kinds, like a concept, uh, the idea of performance, um, an act or an activity, something that we would tab as performative, not necessarily a specific speech act, right? There, there's more to it than that. But both of them work together. In this sense, there's an as-if of performity analogous to the as-if of theater. So we perform a certain identity through acts, and we're acting as if. Like, here's a good example. I think I've used it before in prior lectures. When you're going to a live sporting event, do you feel like you need to act in the role of fan? You need to perform in the role of fan. You need to dress a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You need to engage in chants, all of those things. It's kind of like theater. It's a performative. You're playing a character. You're playing a role. It's tied to you and your identity. You're still a fan, but you're still, you know, it's still all performative. In performativity, the as-if also consists of constructed social realities like gender and race. They're provisional, they're made up, they're societally identified, constructed, and maintained, but still, we act in those the same ways that we act in some of the other behaviors too. What are those acts? Like, what do we do? How do we make up gender? How do we make up race? How do we perform masculinity, femininity, whiteness, blackness, whatever it might be? They're all provisional, but that doesn't mean they can't all be studied. And that's what we're doing. The lens that we're using to study them, that's performativity. That's the heart of performance studies.